0: From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Matt Singer.
1: And I'm Allison Wilmore. On this episode of the show, Matt and I have a series of long, slow, and deeply uncomfortable conversations. Nope, not related in any way to our review of Christian Munju's graduation. That's just how every episode of this podcast
0: goes. Not nice. But also true. We are going to take an, uh, one of our occasional breaks from our regular format this week, though. We were going to talk about modern Romanian cinema in honor of graduation, but Allison and I have just gotten back from the Toronto International Film Festival. So instead, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about all the highs and maybe a couple of lows from this year's festival. And if you're really lucky, Allison will do her impression of Nicolas Cage destroying a pool table with a sledgehammer while singing the Hokey Pokey. That featured in his Toronto Film Festival movie Mom and Dad.
1: You know, I would, except we can't afford to pay for the rights to the hokey pokey.
0: That's too bad. All right. Well, anyway, let's carry on with our listener's choice review of Graduation.
1: When you the
0: On every episode of Filmspotting SVU, our main review topic is chosen by listeners through a poll on our website, FilmspottingSVU.com. Your options last time were Manifesto, a new art film starring Cate Blanchett in 13 different roles. First, They Killed My Father, which is Angelina Jolie's latest effort as a director. And graduation, a Cannes Film Festival award winner from Romanian director Christian Munju. And based on the results, it appears that our listeners have a severe case of Romania. That's terrible. Thank you. Graduation was the winner with 48% of the vote. Uh, First, They Killed My Father was trailing far behind in second, and Manifesto brought up the rear. Graduation is the fifth film from Munju, who rose to international prominence when his 2007 film, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, among many other honors and a host of great reviews. Neither of his two subsequent films earned quite the same level of attention or acclaim, but Graduation did win Munju a Best Director Award at last year's Cannes Film Festival and has earned plenty of critical hosannas around the world. The film stars Adrian Titiani. Apologies for butchering his or any name that comes up in this segment. Uh, He plays Romeo, a middle-aged Romanian surgeon who is laser-focused on getting his high school-aged daughter an elite scholarship to a college in England, To do that, she will need to ace her final exams, something that becomes incredibly difficult after the daughter, Eliza, played by Maria Dragas, is sexually assaulted on her way to school. Uh, the school system will not let her delay the test, so Romeo, who prides himself on following the rules and not succumbing to what appears, at least in the film, to be this like, widespread system of corruption and favor exchanges in Romania, to make some morally questionable decisions in order to help his daughter achieve her goals. But are they her goals? One of the interesting parts of Graduation is that it has all these shades of gray layered into its protagonist, uh, who might actually be more self-righteous than legitimately righteous, and uh, all of the questions that are raised by his choices. If you do something illegal for seemingly good reasons, does that make it okay? If everyone is breaking the rules, what's the harm in doing it yourself? And on a fundamental level, how do we know in any situation what is the right thing to do? We can talk about all of that. But, Allison, my first question to you is this. Do you think Romeo is a good dad?
1: Ooh, interesting, difficult question. Yes. I think that he has the best intentions in terms of his fatherhood. Okay. But I think that he also clearly at a certain point has stopped seeing his daughter as a person mm. because he does not hear her when she talks. Right. Uh, you know, he uh, does not hear her in terms of whether she even wants to go abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that she's very kind of conflicted about. He does not hear her in terms of just like the life she's been living. There's a certain point. You know uh, what happens in this movie revolves around this off-screen attempted sexual assault, yep. an attack, and uh, one of the bits of information it brings to light is that she is not a virgin; that she has been sexually active for a while. Sure, and he is shocked, and he's he says to his wife who was not surprised by this news. Mm -hmm. Like, why wouldn't she talk to me about these things? And I feel like the whole movie is the answer to that question. (laughs) There is no reason she would talk to him about these things because he doesn't hear her. Yeah, Uh, He is kind of like already set on this path and uh, won't, won't diverge from it. So I think that that's, I don't know if there's a good yes or no to that because he does have great intentions and he has, reasons for wanting to send her along this way yes but he if, if you don't bother to listen to what your child actually wants what her concerns are then i think that you can't be called an entirely good parent by any means mm-hmm. i don't know what do you think
0: yeah it's a it's a it's a difficult question to uh, answer i think you you pretty much saw it the exact same way as me uh it's this is a t- this was a very tough film to watch for me not because it's bad but because it's good. As a, as a and father And as a father of one daughter with another daughter on the way. Yeah. Um it just to trying to, you know because I do think it's certainly at the beginning of this movie at least that this character does have good intentions. He thinks he's doing what is best for his daughter, but as you said he doesn't listen to her and he doesn't necessarily do what is best for her for from her perspective. And there are several very questionable things that he does down the line. But that is sort of, that's the sort of troubling thing about it. Uh, and the good thing about it as a movie is that you're watching it and going, I understand why this character is doing everything he does. And he thinks he is doing it for the right reasons. But they may actually still be. The wrong reasons, and and uh, the like. The way I would describe this movie to someone who hasn't seen it, if they said, "What is it about?" and I would say, "It is parental torture porn. <laughs> it is about watching this man who wants to be a good father, maybe not a good husband, but a good father, try to do what he believes is right, and the incredible suffering that that causes him, his daughter, his wife, his mistress. It's just, it's just like agony watching all of these people. It's like in slow motion, just." Oh, I was so uncomfortable. It's like watching a really good episode of The Office or Curb Your Enthusiasm without the jokes, where it's just uncomfortableness and awkwardness and people in these really excruciating conversations and and sort of butting heads with each other, and there's no release valve at all. And I just sat there squirming for two hours. Yeah,
1: it is very uncomfortable. You know, this is the second time I've seen this film. I, I actually did get to see it at Cannes last year, and... And I, it was towards the end, and I think for me, when I was seeing it then, overwhelmingly for me was just seeing in it these kind of elements that have been very common of the Romanian New Wave: this focus on bureaucracy, this kind of morality, endless, yes, morality, this endless like kind of like maze of bureaucracy that can yes. be u- used to block anything, yeah, corruption, this, c- corruption, and this kind of like this the ways in which people are kind of incentivized not to help you, like Mm -hmm. not to kind of take initiative because it just leaves you more vulnerable. Yes. Uh, And ways in which all of those things add up sometimes to like the very darkest sort of comedy almost. And there are times where this, like, this movie is not funny by any means, but I think it almost glances on bits of dark comedy in that you have this character who is capable of acting very kind of like outraged against the same behavior that he does himself. Sure. You know, again and again. There's one part where he's watching... He's watching uh, security footage of the area where his daughter was assaulted. And he's watching people not intervene. And he says, you know, like, oh, every man for himself and all of that. And yet, of course, that is the lesson that he is trying to kind of like put on his daughter, which is that you have to
0: watch out for yourself. Sometimes you have to take
1: whatever advantage. you can. And he is doing
0: through the whole film in trying to like do whatever it takes to get her into the scholarship.
1: And so I think that for me, watching it the second time, I liked it the first time, but I really admired it the second time around. I think because it is such a good portrait of a person, it, you know, not just of this kind of like ex- extremely difficult system. Uh, I thought that like, it is an exceptionally uncomfortable, Ugh. squirmingly uncomfortable portrait Ugh. of this man and the ways in which he thinking he's doing the right thing destroys like every relationship in his life. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Basically. yes.
1: Um, But I I think that, like, it is so smart about how it portrays his do what I say, not what I do. Yeah. Another film this reminded me of, beyond the obvious connections to Manju's work and the Romanian New Wave in general, is it made me think a bit of a separation.
0: I I have that in my notes, that it reminds me of an Asghar Farhadi movie. Absolutely. In the way that it sets up these, like, moral traps where there is no right and no wrong. And every, you know, every move a character makes is logical and makes sense and can be seen as as having been done for a good reason and it always like there's always a backfire or there's always a reason why it's not the right thing to do or that you know something bad comes out of it and you have this escalating series of you know seemingly benign or well-intentioned decisions that each one creates more and more doom. It's like the ball rolling down the hill, the the, the snowball that turns into the avalanche or whatever. It's like, yeah, I have that in my notes as well. It absolutely reminds me of one of his films.
1: Yeah. In in particular, a separation for like, I thought of a separation in that it it deals with the dilemma when you are in a place of relative privilege in a country that is still going through a lot of development, let's Mm -hmm. say Uh, that, you are faced with this dilemma between being, like, leaving, making the choice basically, like, every, every man for themselves. Like, right. my daughter can have a better life if she leaves. Or staying and doing the work and maybe right, improving to help. your homeland. Yes. yes, in some way. Like, this brain drain, you know, conversation. Yeah. And this movie is, like, very much about that. And mm-hmm. in particular about how this man and his wife returned to Romania yes. with like idealism and this like sense that they could change things. Yes. They had and about, left,
0: they had gone to England and then they come back yes. in like the early nineties. 1991. I think he says. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: And, uh, and of course things had not worked out the way he wanted. <laughs> right. Uh, and I think that there. I mean, there's just a kind of classic, like older person speaking with the experience and the cynicism of an older person talking to a younger generation. But there is also this disillusionment that came from being a kind of failed revolutionary or failed idealist and not being able to, you know, produce momentous change in your country. Mm -hmm. It's a high, you know, a difficult thing in general. But I, I think the ways in which the movie deals with that and deals with just like all of the kind of moral compromises you accrue as you get older is really fascinating.
0: Yeah. And it's so interesting too, because this is a guy who, again, he makes a big show of being an honest man who doesn't take shortcuts and doesn't, he doesn't take bribes, doesn't take bribes, doesn't doesn't do favors. favors, which is seemingly the, like the, the Romanian currency in this film. And, and yet His whole goal for his daughter is to be unlike him, right? And it's like you know he makes a big show of being honest and sincere, and he came back to help his country. But all he wants for his daughter is to do the opposite of what he did. And that's yet another one of the fascinating contradictions in this guy is that he wants – and he wants his daughter to be happy and successful and good. But it's also at the same time, it's like it's all about her – correcting you know it's like the father who never succeeded in football and so he forces his kid to play football and it's like dad i don't want to play football put on the ha- on the pads kid and get <laughs> out there and prove you know it's right. like it is like that but taken to this extreme where it, the stakes are so much higher because it involves you know basically life and death because of this horrible uh attack that happens too uh yeah it's i it, it's a <clears throat> it's a it's one of those movies where you're glad you watched it and you just I can't imagine sitting through it again anytime I, soon. I thought
1: it was a better movie the second time wow, around. It that's kind of uh, I, I found it, I found it a little grueling the first I time see I that. watched it, uh, but the second time I actually I think it kind of like opened up more for me. Mm-hmm. In particular, as this portrait of a man and as this kind of like portrait of like, uh, I actually also like a portrait of a kind of like. Older generations' masculinity, kind mm. of getting embarrassed and fading. You know, like he is so sure that he can lead decisions in his family, right? And yet, at the end, everyone already knew about his weaknesses. You know, including his mistress. I mm-hmm. think the ways in which his mistress is handled, uh, and the uh, it, is like it so becomes this this means in which he is made to realize that maybe he didn't have the secrets that uh he thought he did in the first place mm-hmm. that maybe this idea of himself this image of himself as this upright moral figure was not how he has been seen in other people's eyes
0: right. from the beginning right. you
1: know it's a self-created image is one he's clung to but when he starts making compromises Uh, maybe they're not as surprising to other people as as he may have thought.
0: Well, like I said, you know, he definitely at times seems more self-righteous than legitimately righteous. He has this image of himself. But, I mean, most of what we see him do in the movie is just one compromise after another. And I think one of the other beautiful kind of complexities of it is the fact that, okay, he's, you know, he actually, he's decided to, because he has to get his daughter this scholarship. He's going to do whatever it takes. He makes these deals with people. And what happens? I mean, uh, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the film yet, but the cops start to catch on. Like he winds up as a a focus of this corruption investigation, which as a guy who came back to Romania to try to change the system, he should be happy in a certain level because this is what he wants his country to become. Right. And there's a part
1: towards the end where he almost accepts that. He basically does. He's like – Maybe you guys can change things, even though he has, at that point, become part of the problem. Right, right.
0: Yeah. And I love that about the movie, is that, and we feel bad, like, we just feel, because we like this guy to a certain degree, we feel bad for him, you know, he's trying, again, he's trying to do what he thinks is right and he gets in a certain level he gets what he wanted all of his life that he wants this better right. Romania this right. country that actually holds people accountable yes. except when it happens he's the one who is going to be held accountable right. and, then, and that's just such a great sort of like grand uh, you know joke, dramatic Really, yeah. I think
1: it is like it is like an incredibly stealthy dark punchline Uh, You know, I will say I do think there are moments in this movie where it's a little bit on the nose. Oh yeah, including uh, a late scene in which he's watching. Yes, a boy where the movie basically spells it out. Yes, speaks its thesis out loud in a way that is not necessary. I think, but certainly not by that point. I mean, it'd be
0: one thing. I think the scene you're talking about, someone literally says like, "What am I supposed to do? Like, what is the right thing to do?" Yeah, and. I think by that point in the movie, we all – if you're paying attention, you understand that is the point of the movie. Perhaps if that scene was the first scene in the movie and that was like you you would – it would sort of alert you to what you should be looking for, that, I think it would be less – it would stand out less as an awkward scene. Right. But coming at the end, it's like I've been watching literally two hours of this. That is all this movie is about. I think I got yeah, it. I
1: got it. I got it. And I think that that scene – the, the thing that made up for that scene for me is the very, very last scene of the movie. Okay. Um, I don't. This is not... I don't know if that you can spoil this movie. But there is a very last scene of the movie in which the daughter is... It's at her high school graduation. Mm-hmm. And she makes reference to the fact that, uh, that... That she got a little extra time on her test and then says, didn't I do right? Like, she suggests she cried deliberately to get some extra time on the uh-huh. test. And I feel like that is. Such a
0: bleak (laughs) way Well, and she also says, that was all I had to do. That was all I had to do. That all these things he did, the deals he cut, the moral compromises he made, potentially the who knows what's going to happen to him with the police. Everything he did – was meaningless, right? So it
1: was both unnecessary, unnecessary. But then also, his daughter is also just as morally compromised, at least in terms of like her willingness to exploit Spend the a system for, yes, herself. for herself. And I'm like, that is a brilliant. Yeah, that's ending. like that's like the
0: aristocrats <laughs> yes. at the t- at the end of this very yeah. dark, unfunny joke.
1: Oh, it's uh, it's quite it's quite a movie. I, I think it's really. Um, it's so kind of unforgiving, and yet it's not cruel to these characters. Yeah. They earn everything that comes to them. Sure.
0: Uh, e- even when it's terrible things. I don't know how you watched it twice, though. <laughs> I don't think I could ever watch this movie again.
1: I, I really don't no, think so. I think it,
0: it's... Per, I'm parental torture porn. Uh, That's it. That's what it is.
1: Yeah, I can see that. I, you know, but I think that the, it's so smart about it that I think that it earns all of the excruciating twists that yeah. it, it allows. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, that is graduation, and it is streaming on Netflix. Hardy recommendations from us, with fair warning as well.
0: In the interim between our last episode and this episode, Allison and I both attended the Toronto International Film Festival. It has really become the official sort of uh, kickoff of the fall movie season, the awards season. This is now really the the place if you are a studio who wants to get some buzz on some big uh, important. Uh, awards movie, you really are now sort of like almost expected to premiere it at Toronto. And uh, so we're going to talk about, uh, we've each got five movies that we saw there that we that we really liked. We're going to share each of those. At the very end, we'll try to throw in a least favorite movie that we saw very briefly. And we're going to try to keep our comments on each movie short so we can get through all of these any general thoughts about the festival, Allison? did you think it was a good festival this I, year? I,
1: I did think it was a good festival. I don't okay. know that I saw a lot of things that totally blew me away. I saw one or two things, but mm. I did feel like i a, it it should be an interesting fall that's okay. what i will say all right
0: i i I saw a couple of really really great movies and then a lot of middling ones that were and not even necessarily bad, just like you know a, a very satisfying biopics there was a lot of biopics
1: i, I actually i you, told you my editor specifically year, avoided them. i was
0: like i'm not gonna go to most of the biopics so you 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 literally, by you by law you could not see i think 45 <laughs> of the program because 45 yeah, of the movies it, there were I, biopics I Definitely,
1: still there is a biopic on this list yeah. that i will talk about but i said like all of the movies where i'm just fundamentally not interested in yeah. what's being on offer yeah but it might get someone an oscar
0: not gonna go i do have one biopic on my list yes. too i have to say and i there saw are, some other uh, biopics that were decent yes but uh but it is there's just too many of those 45
1: percent of the festival it's, a, it's is, unbelievable
0: yes. how many there are and again it's because those are the movies that people make because they right. want to win oscars and those are the and because of that they play them at toronto so it's just just jam packed with biopics all right so let's we, again we're going to try to get yep. through as many movies as we can here so why don't we start why don't you give us your first uh, film that you really liked
1: okay this is actually i think my was my one of my favorite films to see, see out of the festival, The Death of Stalin. This is the latest film from, from Armando Iannucci of In the Loop and more recently Veep. Uh, it is, and it is about the death of Stalin in 1953, except it is all done in his, like, in Iannucci's, I don't know, signature like style. style. Yeah. It's, it's a story about government as, you know, filled with bumbling, self-interested, narcissistic fools, It's got a cast that includes Jeffrey Tambor, Steve Buscemi, uh, Michael Palin, Patty Considine, a great Simon Russell Beale, uh, Jason Isaacs. And it is brutally funny. I just like I, I thought that this was really remarkable because it uses that same sort of like... Uh, the same sort of kind of comedic commentary on on governmental struggle, power struggles as these ridiculous things, except in like a uh, regime that had just like finished purging and torturing a whole bunch of people. And so there's just death going on in the background constantly. People do walk and talks, characters do walk and talks and they, Behind them are people getting tortured or thrown down the stairs. It is so darkly funny and so kind of rapid fire ridiculous. Uh, I I thought it was really the best thing that Iannucci's done so far. I I thought it was pretty remarkable. Mm. So that's The Death of Stalin. It is going to be released by IFC Films. I think they said right now January is their target. Mm. So keep an eye out for it then.
0: All right. That was one that I was looking forward to that I didn't get to see. So I'm glad to hear that it was good. I'm going to do my movies in sort of like ascending order from the one I liked the least, although still like, to my favorite of the festival. Oh,
1: mine are in no order in particular. That's
0: fine. Uh, my first movie is The Upside. This is a remake of a very popular, one of the all-time most successful French films, The Intouchables, which I never saw. I can't tell you if that movie is good or bad, but I actually liked this remake more than I expected to. It stars Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. Brian Cranston is this paralyzed billionaire and he hires this man played by Kevin Hart who's like this uh, ex-con to become his caretaker in this sort of, sort of impossible series of events. He winds up as his caretaker. He's totally unqualified, doesn't want the job. He needs a job basically just to keep his parole going or whatever. And then they, of course, wind up becoming very good friends. And I would describe this movie as not great, but the best possible version of what this movie could be Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart are both terrific in it it's this is you know it's sort of a dry comedy but it is not a Kevin Hart movie if in quotation marks and I thought Kevin Hart really showed me that he could be a very good dramatic actor here and um, Nicole Kidman is in it as well it's uh it's it, it is you know it's gonna be like your your grandma's favorite movie, which I think the original movie kind of was as well. Right, crowd lot, pleaser is a big very, crowd pleaser. It's a it's a real crowd pleaser, but it is it pleases the crowd. Like it pleased me. It was as advertised. Again, not and I, I don't think this is actually going to be an Oscar movie. I believe the Weinstein Company is supposedly releasing it in March, but I think it for what it is, it is very satisfying. Um, so I would think if you've seen the original, you'll probably enjoy it. Uh, But I talked to people who did not like the original and thought this one was in ways better. So perhaps if you're – I would say if you want to see Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart have a sort of oil and water relationship uh, that's very sweet, um, this is the one to do that with. So it's called The Upside, and I don't believe it'll – it's supposedly being released, I think, in the spring from Weinstein Company.
1: All right. I decided to go in alphabetical order. Okay. I can fix this so that it works in some sense. Okay. So my second pick is uh, Death of Stalin was my favorite movie that I saw at the festival. But my favorite movie of the year so far, which is one I got to see that was at the festival, but I didn't see until the week after, is The Florida Project. The latest from Sean Baker, most recently of Tangerine, uh, set in these dumpy motels in Kissimmee, Florida, just outside of Disney World. Close enough so that you can hear the nightly fireworks show, yeah. but also about an infinity away in terms of the like kind of brutal economic realities that these characters are living in. And it is centered around this uh, Brooklyn Kimberly Prince, this little girl, her, this really remarkably, I, I would say it's hard to say with a child. I think there are a lot of times where she's just playing. She's just like an incredibly charismatic child. And that Baker really kind of like frames the movie around her performance in a way that is joyous and totally devastating, given that you understand more about the precariousness of her situation than she does. But it kind of goes between her at play during the day and her mother, played by Bria uh, Vinante, I think is her name, or Vinante, who knows, uh, she's ever, also a first-time performer, as her like extremely young mother, who is kind of half a kid herself, and is really struggling to pay the bills, is out of prison, trying to avoid going back, got fired from a job uh, as an exotic dancer, and is just trying to get by, but is also like not a super responsible person. Mm. It really just likes kind of like playing with her kid. Be a
0: great double feature with graduation. Yes,
1: absolutely. Uh and I think the ways in which those two storylines converge are just so heartbreaking in this movie and mm-hmm. so perfect. Yep. It got also a great performance from Willem Dafoe as the guy who's running this motel and who is invested in in the fates of his residents in a way that he knows is like doomed, but that also He can only do so much for them. It's actually, I think it's a pretty wonderful movie. As I've said, it's my favorite of the year so far. Wow! Uh, And A24 will be releasing that on October 6th. So soon.
0: I saw that one at the festival and I would have had it on my list for sure if Allison hadn't claimed it. Uh, Definitely one of my absolute favorites there. It's an incredible movie. Okay. My next pick is the only, unfortunately, the only documentary I had time to see at the festival. It's very interesting. It is called Jim and Andy, the Great Beyond, the story of Jim Carrey and Andy Kaufman with a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton. I don't even have enough time to read the whole title of this movie. It, I don't even have enough title to explain this movie either because it's kind of got an interesting thing. Okay. Here we go. I'll do it as quick as I can. Jim Carrey starred as Andy Kaufman in Man on the Moon in 1998. Yes. He convinced the studio to let him, instead of doing a traditional press kit, electronic press kit with behind-the-scenes interviews and things, he convinced the studio to let him have Andy Kaufman's girlfriend, his widow essentially, film him behind the scenes for the entire making of the movie. This footage was deemed so sort of incendiary in terms of everyone on set hating Jim Carrey because he was so (laughs) obnoxious playing Andy Kaufman. And playing Tony Clifton and just driving people insane that the studio says – and they talk about this in the movie. The studio said, we can't let anyone see this. We don't want people to think Jim Carrey is an a-hole. They didn't say <laughs> A either. So basically this, this footage sat in Jim Carrey's office for 20 years. 20 years later, him and Spike Jones, who's the producer of the movie, gave the footage to Chris Smith, the great documentarian who made American Movie, among other films, and said, here, you do something with this. And he basically put it together along with a new interview with Jim Carrey in the present talking about himself, his life, his career, his somewhat bizarre feelings about the universe in 2017, if you've heard him speak recently. He has a lot of ideas about things. I'm not sure they all make sense. But I found this to be an absolutely fascinating portrait of acting, of artistry, of... I mean, the footage alone of him behind the scenes is incredible. Driving Milos Forman absolutely crazy, driving his co-stars absolutely crazy. And uh, I won't tell you sort of how that evolves over the course of the of the shoot because that's one of the fascinating things about it is how the people react to Andy and then how that changes. Um, and but then that cu- coupled with the interviews in the present, a very I, I found very revealing, honest interview with Jim Carrey. Really, really interesting stuff. And if you're a fan of Jim Carrey and or Andy Kaufman, this should definitely be on your radar. Netflix acquired it for distribution. I don't believe they have a release date for it yet. Um, but yeah, you will be able to see this one eventually on Netflix. Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond.
1: All right. Uh, for my next pick, I'm going to talk about a movie that this is a biopic, speaking of. Uh, And it was, I think, one of the big surprises of the festival. It was one of the big question marks going in and turned out to be, like, I think for me, certainly unexpectedly great. It was I, Tanya. This is the biopic uh, kind of black comedy about Tanya Harding as played by Margot Robbie. Um, And then Sebastian Stan playing Harding's ex- husband Jeff Galuli, and then Allison Janney as her mother her estranged mother and and a bunch of other people but I think what is so remarkable about this movie which is directed by Craig Gillespie who did Lars and the Real Girl their finest hour the finest hours is that it takes an approach that I would say is reminiscent of 24-hour party people it combines all of these actors playing these characters in the present day doing interviews to the camera with flashbacks. But as the movie says in its beginning, it is based on these wildly contradictory interviews that Harding and Galuli and other people gave about the events that happened. So it expresses how the kind of unreliable narrator qualities of all of these characters by having them, sometimes like turn to the camera and contradict what they're currently doing or having them break in to complain about how much they've faded into the background of the narrative or having them break in to talk about to on their own behalf and defend themselves. And, you know, I think that it both makes a lot of sense with regards to like still how, how Tanya Harding talks about what happened and the incident with Nancy Kerrigan. But it also, I think, uh, Uh, underscores this kind of idea of like what this, like what is the Tanya Harding story about? Which, you know, at the time it was kind of unintentionally about how, or it was about America rejecting this woman because of class issues and body issues, Mm -hmm. not fitting into the idea of a figure skater. Sure. And then it becomes this kind of like grander, sadder, tawdrier narrative um, that I think is, is, Uh, Really well done, with the exception of the soundtrack, which is weirdly glaringly period-inappropriate. Like, it plays Spirit in the Sky, things like that. Like, really kind of, like, on-the-nose, obvious soundtrack cues. Um, And I I don't know why. But other than that, I think it's a pretty great film. And I was really pleasantly surprised by it. So that's Itanya. It got acquired by Neon out of the festival. They apparently are going to give it a December 8th limited release and kind of give it an awards push. They're first.
0: Hmm. Okay. I missed that one. I was really hoping to see it. Didn't have a chance to. Glad it, that you liked it. It sounds very interesting. My next pick, though, it's interesting. You said the one thing you didn't like about that movie was the music. One of the few things I felt was sort of weird and and off about my pick was also like music that didn't fit the period or what was going on in this movie and that is the Disaster Artist. Did you see the Disaster Artist? I did. Did you think the music fit that movie cuz I also felt like the the year like the music was like from like 10 years too early.
1: Uh, that made sense to me just because it seemed like he he would be, he would be out of time okay, as a perhaps.
0: person. I, I, it certainly was something that I, I observed, but okay. Uh, the disaster artist, the person we're talking about here is Tommy Wiseau. This is the biopic on my list. Tommy Wiseau, the man, the myth, the legend who made The Room, the epic, perhaps worst film ever made, and this movie directed, produced, and starring James Franco as Tommy Wiseau is... You know, it's it sounds when you hear that it sounds like a stunt that James Franco is going to play Tommy Wiseau. He's going to recreate the room. He's going to make this movie about the making of the room. He's got Dave Franco playing um, uh, uh, Greg, the you know the the buddy, and so their brothers playing friends. It just seems very kitschy, high concept. But what I what caught me off guard is that it's this incredibly sweet and affectionate portrait of this guy, Tommy Wiseau, um, without making him seem like a great misunderstood artist, or trying to make The Room seem like this masterpiece. They totally have fun with The Room, with Tommy, with his w- curious qualities. It does a beautiful job of saying, this is why this guy is special. He had a dream, and he followed it. No matter, no matter how often someone said, maybe you shouldn't do that. No matter how many times the people saying that were accurate in, in that description. Um, I do think... Well, I don't know. I'm trying. People have asked me, "Do you need to know the room to enjoy this movie?" I don't know. I feel like if you haven't seen the room, you may like it more because the the stuff from the room is shockingly accurate. They recreate it all perfectly. They have the end credits have a side by side that's almost disturbing. So if you haven't seen that stuff, you're just going to laugh at that. Um, but knowing the movie, it uh, to me, it almost like enhanced the whole thing because I could appreciate how specific these talented filmmakers were in making something that an untalented, trying to recreate something that an untalented man had done. Uh, I, I was, I had high expectations for this movie and I, I felt like it it's still very much delivered. The movie is uh, coming out from A24, supposedly the, I think the limited release starts on December 1st. I feel like James Franco is a long shot for any sort of awards consideration, but I hope he gets there because he is actually terrific as Tommy Wiseau. And the accent is amazing. I don't know how he did the accent so well.
1: All right, my next pick is, I'm going to say not going to be an award, up for awards consideration, but it is uh, like, I think, one of the better movies of the year. It is The Rider, which is from Chloe Zhao, uh, a Chinese-American director who has made two movies now about... Uh, the Dakotas really and kind of life out in these like in the West uh, and this particular lifestyle. Well, her first was set on a, a reservation. This second one is set on the rodeo circuits in South Dakota and it follows a a kind of 20 something guy who uh, if 20 something who got badly injured in an accident on the rodeo circuit and has a metal plate in his head and is trying to reckon with what his life will be like. The doctor keeps telling him if you keep right if you ride again you're going to die. Um and yet at the same time his identity is so tied up and the identity of his friends is so tied up in being a rodeo rider and a rodeo star that he doesn't really know what's next Um, and he didn't go to, he didn't finish high school. He doesn't really have a lot of career prospects. And so uh, this is like a docudrama. Brady Jandro uh, plays the main character, Brady Blackburn and his family plays his family. But it is also just, it is like so exquisitely beautiful. Like it is just hauntingly gorgeous. Um, And also I think is one of those movies where You know, in talking about graduation, or like sometimes these things are a little on the nose. This movie, it has symbolism that is so straightforward that it should seem on the nose. But because it is about characters who are not cloaking how they're feeling in any way, you know, like one of the things this character has is like after his injury, he has brain seizures that cause his hand to grip up and he has to kind of like pry his hand open again. And like towards the end, you kind of realize, or at least I realize, maybe other people would pick up on this a lot sooner. This is someone who literally can't let things go. right? Right. He literally cannot let go of things. And yet I think that that, the, the fact that that works so well speaks to this kind of poetic simplicity of this movie. It is very beautifully made, and I, I thought pretty enchanting. That is The Rider. Uh, Sony Classics picked it up out of Cannes, uh, but it doesn't have a date attached yet, so keep an eye
0: out for that one. My next pick is the movie we mentioned right at the top of the show with one of the all-time Nicholas cage Nick Cage performances. It's Mom and Dad, directed by Brian Taylor, one half of the Neville Dean Taylor directing team that I uh, was a big fan of. They haven't made a movie in several years. Brian Taylor made this on his own. He wrote and directed it. And it's sort of like a zombie movie, but instead of zombies sort of mindlessly roaming around trying to eat people, there's like this mysterious, unknown, unexplained virus that is making parents all over the world try to kill their children. Without explanation, they just become, they basically become Nicolas Cage. If you can imagine (laughs) every parent in the world becoming like a, a crazy Nicolas Cage, just raving lunatic. That's what happens. And I think it's possible with other parents in the role, you know, other actors, it might not be as good as it is. Um, But when you have Nicolas Cage and Selma Blair as the parents here, it's really tremendous. Like at a certain point, the movie sort of just locks down in this one family's house with the kids barricaded downstairs and Nicolas Cage and Selma Blair trying to get in to kill them. And I mean, when, when Nicolas Cage's character goes crazy in this movie and becomes the full cage... It's magnificent. If you are, are at all a fan of crazy Nick Cage performances, this is a must-see. And what's great about it is the movie, there's a perfect reason for him to be nuts. He has, this, he's, he has this virus or whatever. So it's not a movie where him being Nick Cage is out of place or strange. Like, it just makes perfect sense. It's just a brilliant use of him. I thought the high-concept premise was great. The cinematography, all the cutting. If you like Neville Dean Taylor, it has that vibe, that energy. It's just a really super disturbing, fun dark horror comedy midnight movie and I was totally tickled by it and I was very, very happy to get to see it at the premiere where Nicolas Cage was there laughing at himself. You could hear him laughing. You could hear him. There were scenes where no one was laughing but him at himself which was very special as well. So this is Mom and Dad. I don't think the film has a distributor yet which is surprising. I'm not sure why. To me, it seems like it's destined for at least online streaming somewhere but... Uh, as I'm recording this, I don't think it has a, a distributor yet. Hopefully, it will find one soon. Mom and Dad.
1: All right. My last pick, my last recommendation is one that is definitely going to be talked about during award season. I think it actually could be surprising how much it's talked about. It is The Shape of Water, the latest film from Guillermo del Toro and a romantic fantasy uh, starring Sally Hawkins as a, a woman who lost her voice due to an injury as a baby and who works in this strange government facility as a cleaner uh, into which, into this government facility is brought a, a merman, I guess you want to say a kind of like a monster, maybe uh, an amphibious, amphibious monster, a creature uh, played by Doug Jones. And uh, they fall in love pretty much it. Uh, you know just your usual uh beauty and the beast romance right i think that one of the things that like this movie won me over right away by starting with this like kind of beautiful fairy tale tone and then as you're seeing her uh the main character's morning um routine it includes getting into the bathtub and masturbating and i was like ah. it's not a child's fairy tale <laughs> no, by any means no i don't think so by any means i mean it is not a a child's romance <laughs> uh and i think just like the ways in which it treats this kind of fantasy it merges fantasy and like kind of these beautiful uh, moments of like cinephilia with uh digging into nostalgia about that era in particular how all of the main characters are in different ways marginalized and kind of rendered invisible to Michael Shannon's character who is the villain and kind of what? A, Michael Shannon can playing you believe a villain? It? and kind of like the uh, American dad businessman gone horribly wrong Um, and is very enjoyable in that role as he is in just about everything of course Sure, it is an extremely beautiful movie and I think uh, Sally Hawkins is in particular incredible I you know it was having me tear up. Uh, just from close-ups of her face uh, early on. So that is The Shape of Water. It'll be coming out from Fox Searchlight on December 8th.
0: Okay, and my last film was my favorite of the festival. It was also the the festival's favorite of the festival. It won the People's Choice Award, well-deserved. It is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. This is from Martin McDonough. Uh, his new film, Francis McDormand, Woody Harrelson, Sam Rockwell, John Hawks, Peter Dinklage, another film that's very hard to sort of describe in like the two minutes we're trying to do these. But it essentially starts with a woman fed up with her local police because they haven't done enough to solve her daughter's murder. And she takes out these billboards near her home, essentially criticizing the chief of police played by Woody Harrelson, saying, what the heck? What's, what are you waiting for? He does not take that kindly, as you would expect, and basically everything escalates from there. Um, it is an incredibly funny movie at times. It is an incredibly sad movie at times. It's a great mystery um, that goes in very unexpected directions. Um, it has all these wonderful characters. The you know it has you know Frances McDormand is sort of like this giant at the center of it, but Sam Rockwell is maybe even better than she She's is incredible. in the main supporting role uh i thought peter dinklage was amazing john hawks john hawks shows up like an hour into this movie and i literally went f yes john hawks he just shows up out of nowhere i was so excited he has like three scenes they're all great wonderful cast uh great filmmaking great script i just thought this was like i mean to me this is like the movie that was my favorite and also like my favorite movie of the year when i saw it i was just like this is everything i want in a movie it is just like a great story it is about great characters it has great dialogue it is incredibly engrossing and it also has a lot to say about our world as it exists right now but it's not didactic in the way that you're sitting there going oh this is an this is an issue film this is about issues like it is able to talk about things without wagging its finger at you without doing the obvious things it is really surprising in all the right ways uh, I just love this movie. Uh, I can't wait to see it again. If they had said, hey, we're going to show it again, if anyone wants to sit, I would have sat right in my seat and watched it all all over again. I will definitely be seeing it again when it comes out. It's a Fox Searchlight movie. It is opening on November 10th. Big year for Fox Searchlights. Yes, that's the one thing. Is like A Shape of Water, right? Yes. And, but basically, two of our absolute favorite movies I mean, and they both seem like they could be Oscar contenders, but they always say when one studio is controlling two of them, it's like, where are they going to put their resources? We'll see. Yeah, I have a feeling, just my guess would be they're going to put them against Shape of Water because to me that sounds, I haven't seen it, that sounds like the one that has a potentially broader appeal. But
1: it's also a genre film in That's a way true. that... But Three Billboards ask- is... is a, is a, is a is Sure, but no, but I mean, like it's like... Like, this, like it's not a movie about a woman falling in love with a... A uh, man. Yes.
0: You're right. I just think it could be a little... I don't know how, how the Oscars are going to react this year. Are they going to want to lean into being hot button and topical, or are they going to want to move away from that? Oh, we shall find we out. We shall find we're out. We're
1: going to give a quick shout-out. We're going to keep this under a minute each. we just were going to mention our least favorite films All from right. the festival. Um, right. Matt, why don't you go first?
0: My least favorite film from the festival was... Uh, roman j israel esquire that is the name of the film uh it is the new film from dan gilroy that's why i was so disappointed by this he did nightcrawler i thought was a very interesting movie this has none of the interest of that film it's denzel washington who's a great actor even in bad movies i even didn't think he was very good in this he plays this lawyer whose life is sort of turned on its head when his partner passes away and uh, kind of like Graduation, he is this very principled man, and he sort of begins to make moral compromises. But it's a very meandering, wandering story. It basically takes like over an hour to even find a plot. At first, it's like a, just like a character study of this odd, strange man. And I just didn't think it ever came together, and I was sort of baffled by it. I mean, Love or Hate Nightcrawler, it's a very sort of effective, pointed movie. And this was, I thought, was just a mess, absolute mess, and a huge disappointment to me. All right,
1: yeah, I saw that too, and it was baffling. Yeah, um, that's but it—that's the word for it. It did not break my heart the way Alexander Payne's downsizing did.
0: Oh, I didn't see downsizing. Yeah,
1: a movie that starts off with this very Charlie Kaufman esque, interesting and kind of pointed premise this that like uh people in the world start getting offered the chance to shrink themselves uh and they say this is for the environment they use less resources but also becomes a way to have this kind of like high american standard Get of rich living quick, essentially yes, right because you're not spending as much money so but, like the main character is played by Matt Damon uh he and he and his wife Kristen Wig kind of see this as a way to get their McMansion of their dreams, right. you know, and be able to to kind of vacation and all of that. And then it takes a turn into just like a baffling off-the-rails exploration into kind of uh, America's place as like a fading leader in this third world. And it introduces this character from played by Hong Chow, who's an actress I really have liked before. And this character is just, I think, disastrously written. Just like a kind of grotesque uh, kind of caricature mm-hmm. of it. And I I... I just think it's such a mess in the second half, uh, and it makes me sad because I, I enjoy the films of Alexander Payne, Sure, but I did not enjoy Downsizing. Okay. Say goodbye to the Kingsmen.
0: Kind of got a bit of a say the World situation here. All right. Well, we finally got some new movies to talk about. We're going to try to cover a bunch of them, uh, but do so, again, sort of as briefly as we can. We haven't seen the upcoming stuff, but we've seen a bunch of stuff that is in theaters now, starting with Kingsman, The Golden Circle. This is the sequel to the, I believe, 2014 film, Kingsman, The Secret Service, based on a graphic novel, but more really uh, just a spoof of Bond films. It's like uh, Austin Powers, but without. it's a much drier, darker, sort of more nihilistic, less jokey version where you're kind of sending up Bond tropes, um, but modernizing them at the same time and trying to eat, have your cake and eat it too. Um, Allison, did you, first of all, did you like the first movie and how did you feel about the second movie? I
1: liked half, the first half of the first movie. Okay. I thought that
0: it was- Just the training stuff the following, training following stuff, this guy. The training
1: stuff, the kind of like blowing up this like the kind of like classist world of James Bond with this sure. guy who's like, just like working class dude. Eggsy, played by yes. Taron Egerton. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the kind of, like, funniness of the whole tailor shop premise. But then right. I just, like, and I find this true for, it's Mark Miller, right? Uh, yeah, the writer the of the writer original of this, comic, who is, yes. like, written, He also wrote Wanted ass, and wanted. kick ass. Yeah. yes. Like, I just find that his work is so kind of misanthropic for me in a way that, like, it always comes through eventually. And, like, in this case, as soon as, it, like, you got to the second half of the movie, the church, the, church. the blowing up of the heads, yeah. the ending, I was just, like, it just, like, Got so kind of, like, left me on the outside. Mm. So that's how my feeling conflicted about the first movie. The second movie I thought was just like cynical in a whole different way. Like mm-hmm. it was like basically a liquor ad. I just thought <laughs> like it was, I, I just thought it was so lazy and haphazard. It trotted on all of these cast members who were clearly only spent like two days on set. Yeah. It, I, it just, I think it was so lazy with its own world. It was lazy with the world it built, I thought. Mm-hmm. And I, I just found it so kind of like almost like insultingly bad.
0: Right. Uh, I liked it more than you did. I liked the first movie more than you did but I like this movie less than the first one and I I don't think you're entirely wrong about some of your criticisms even as someone who kind of liked uh, parts of this one I thought the beginning you know Mike my review of this one kind of sounds like your review of the first one like I liked the first half of this movie quite a bit because I felt like It was very well structured. It had a very – you could tell that they had planted a lot of seeds. They were able to take characters from the first movie and use them in interesting ways here. One of the failed Kingsman recruits of the first movie is like a bad guy in this one. I thought that was kind of clever. He has a bionic arm that does cool stuff. There's lots of fun gadgets. And, you know, they come up with creative stuff like that. Where I agree with you is that this whole statesman – there's this American spy group that is in the movie – they're just a total bust. While I would like to drink the whiskey, you've said it's a whiskey ad, like, the idea is instead of being a tailor shop as a front for a spy agency, the American version is a whiskey distillery. Statesman is a whiskey people drink in this world, and secretly they're also spies.
1: But it's not just the whiskey people drink in this world. Like they, they They're selling it now. a whiskey that they put sure. on shelves before the movie even came out so that you can buy it. Statesman
0: well, whiskey. Sure, okay. But uh, I, wouldn't, wouldn't, I don't have a necessarily have a problem with that in theory, except but the, 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 as you said, like the actors from the American part of the film are barely in it. Like Jeff Bridges, what would you say? Three days? Maybe if max? At that, yeah. Channing Tatum, maybe two days? Yes. Even less?
1: Even so, Halle Berry, who has a slightly bigger she part. She might have like five, like five, days. five days. Yeah, five one, days. one week. Yeah. She probably
0: shot a week. Um, yeah so and and the, and it like the middle hour of this movie, which is like two and a half hours it 's way too long, is all about this this group establishing this group, all this rigmarole where I was really into the first part of this movie, partly because I liked the Eggsy character, I liked his journey in the first movie, so and I liked the way that they had built off of that. But then it all really grinds to a halt. And I like Julianne Moore, too, I have to say. She's the villain, and she has a lot of fun with this. You know, they lost, Samuel Jackson was the bad guy in the first one. He had a lot of fun in that movie. They found a suitable replacement, I thought. But, I, you know, I'd say it's, I mildly enjoyed it. Um, I would, but I, I can't really recommend people like, rush out and see it. It's, it's more a movie to watch on streaming or on, uh, online at some point or on cable. Like, that's where to watch it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a mess that has some nice moments in it, I would say.
1: Here's my question for you. Sure. Uh, Hannah Alstrom who played Princess Tildy yes. of Sweden. Yes. Uh, the person who, who was at the heart of the infamous ending sure. of the first Kingsman movie. Yes. In this one is his girlfriend. Yes. And uh serious girlfriend. Yes. It's a major plot point. Yes, it is. Do you think that is a half-hearted attempt to address anger at how the first movie ended? Or an even trollier response to be like, how about this instead then? They're in love. I,
0: <laughs> I don't know.
1: I thought... <laughs> I think the fact that you can't tell is actually one of the major weaknesses of this, movie. perhaps. I would rather it even be the second.
0: Like- <laughs> I, I honestly though I like the scenes with them, uh, <laughs> and I thought the scene where he has dinner with her parents was hilarious. I like that scene. Um, and so I mean, some of this stuff I just think the movie. I mean, maybe it's just not, it's not good satire because people can't tell that it's making. It just to me, it's like so much of it is just making fun of like things that Bond movies do seriously and not as a joke and no one seems to get upset about like because that's just James Bond but it seems like some of these jokes like making fun of them I don't know the, the way that it has this sort of like attitude about it I think rubs people the wrong way and I get it
1: it's just like I, if it were more of a satire of Bond I would love that but right. I think all it does is just reiterate the things Bond does but slightly louder it is yeah. still getting pleasure out of the same things that Bond does I don't think it like undermines anything
0: yeah I think it I think some of it it's uh it's it's. I think it's a little cl- more clever than you're giving it
1: credit. Yeah, for. and I don't. Anyway, no. let's let's move on quickly. Yes, as if if you can talk about this movie quickly, <laughs> I wanted to mention Mother since uh, it it came out. It was also at the film at the film festival. Yes, it was not on either of our top five lists. Maybe no. because. I, don't, I feel like liking or disliking this movie is almost like not the rubric to totally. talk about. Totally. It is, I am very glad it exists. Totally. It has been extremely entertaining to talk about it. Yes. I have loved the extremely divisive reactions. Me too. But so like, maybe let's just talk about this, Matt. Yeah. What foremost? Which reading foremost did you see in it?
0: Well, what I liked about the movie was that it wasn't just, I didn't see one reading at all. I saw a bunch simultaneously, and that's what I liked about it. It has all this biblical... Subtext is all this environmental subtext and it is all this great subtext about artistry and being an artist and being dare I say being Darren Aronofsky and how it might (laughs) actually be horrible to be in a relationship with him which is amazing because the star of the movie is now in a relationship with him which is yet another amazing sort of layer of this film to try to dig into. So I didn't have a like preferred reading. Part of what I liked about it was that it was so open to a variety of things simultaneously. It held more than one idea at the same time, which is so rare for any movie these days. Yeah,
1: I think that I definitely when I left that movie I saw it as a kind of maybe inadvertently too personal, but like sure. kind of confessional of of the contrast between this drive to create art and how it always means basically turning away from your personal life in a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. Like inherently means. And, and, and then all of this as seen through this kind of like perfect nurturer who just wants to spend time with this person she loves uh, as it gets increasingly strange. Uh, that's definitely how I saw it uh, primarily but I will say that it is even more interesting to me now, given how much Darren Aronofsky does not seem to see it as a movie about those things, or at least keeps yeah, insisting I publicly towards narratives of it either as an environmental parable or yeah. as a biblical parable, yeah. or both. Yeah. Um, so in interviews, he denies that it's he about him. I don't think that he denies it, but he stresses as much as he hates talking about what the meaning is. Sure. But like he, in. Reddit AMAs, yeah, in, in kind of Q&As he's done, he really pushes the biblical and environmental narratives sure. much more. And I, I find the idea that maybe he doesn't, he didn't intend for it to read How the way could
0: it could that does. be, though? I find
1: it wonderful.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he's just, uh, you know, uncomfortable talking about it because if it was me, I would be uncomfortable talking about it. It does not paint the most flattering portrait no, it of it is an
1: extremely artists. unflattering self-portrait right, if you exactly. see it that way. And right. I think, but that's like what's, riveting about it absolutely Um, I will say one more thing I think this movie uh, like people are grouping this movie with Black Swan Mm -hmm. uh, in, in his filmography but I think it actually works better as a bookend to The Fountain Like they both, you know, it is like kind of the anti fountain in that the fountain is about like someone being unable to let go of love and like kind of holding on to it across maybe infinity, across eras. But uh, also, they both have that same like wild eyed, like off the rails kind of freedom to them that I really enjoy.
0: I just love the fact that a big studio made this movie, released it in wide release, released it wide, embraced this weird, messy thing. Like, again love it or hate it that when people complain oh every movie looks the same every movie is a sequel everything is a reboot i guess this is kind of a reboot of the bible but nevertheless <laughs> like i just appreciate the fact that it exists like yeah. i didn't love the movie i was glad i saw it i've been i was glad i was able to participate in the discussion and the conversation sure, sure. but I, but i think the best thing about it is that it, it exists and if it makes enough money to, for other studios to say okay we can take some chances and make some 50 million dollar movies that are a little off the beaten path then it's a win for everybody
1: I will say I think that it is not my favorite movie of the year by any means but it does feel like the movie of the year certainly the movie of the season yeah just in terms of like being able to kind of motivate people to feel so strongly about movies
0: right whether people whether have not cared or about positively. a movie like this in a while yes yeah all right well th- we could talk about other movies but we've rambled on long enough let's get to behind the eight ball that's the segment we do every week on the show where we wrap things up with some new releases on streaming we give you some listener recommendations that you have sent to us at our email address which is svu at com. And we also give you one film that we've each chosen blindly by number from one another's My Lists on Netflix. Uh, Allison, who's going first this time? Why don't you go first? All right.
1: All right, give me three new releases.
0: Okay, well, first up, new on Netflix is a stand-up special from my favorite Jerry Seinfeld. It is called Jerry Before Seinfeld. It was shot at the comic strip in New York City where Seinfeld got his start many years ago working open mics. And the, as the title suggests... It is about his earliest days and his earliest material. If you are a longtime fan like me, you might recognize some of the bits from his old act. Uh, From from the sitcom, he often used some of this material in the stand-up parts of Seinfeld. And there's also autobiographical portions here narrated by Jerry talking about his childhood, his life. And some of them are interesting. I learned things I didn't know. I had no idea, for example, that Jerry Seinfeld's parents, both of them were orphans which is fascinating, huh. especially in light of the fact that Jerry Seinfeld's f- number one pop culture obsession is Superman, who is like the most famous orphan in modern popular culture. So that's really interesting. But I could have used actually more of that. That's kind of like, oh, occasional little drips and drabs. And it's it does kind of seem a little odd that he'll drop that in the middle of all these sort of more superficial stories and jokes and it did make me think about how Seinfeld, this guy who is one of the most autobiographical comedians, seemingly because, you know, like he played himself on TV for uh, ever, it made me think about how little I really know about the real guy, which I thought was interesting. Anyway, I would love to know more, um, but since I am a big fan, I did still enjoy this uh, Jerry before Seinfeld on Netflix. Next up, also on Netflix, is Carol, Todd Haynes' beautiful 2015 film about the romance between two women in the 1950s, shy department store clerk Therese, played by Rooney Mara, and glamorous homemaker Carol Ayrd, played by Kate Blanchett. Uh, maybe somewhat fittingly, given the subject matter, it is a like a movie to make you swoon over the costumes, the period details— the crazy 1950s lunch orders. Do you remember what they order for lunch, Allison? Uh, cream spinach over poached eggs and then a martini. Wow, that is exactly correct. See? <laughs> you don't forget something like that. That You made my point. If you missed it in theaters a few years ago, it is easily one of the great movie romances of the last, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years. Who knows? It's a wonderful movie. Carol, now on Netflix. And finally, a quick note to our listeners that The Lost City of Z, which we discussed in detail on SVU number 142, is now available on Amazon Prime. It's the latest film from James Gray. It's based on the true story of British explorer Percy Fawcett, played by Charlie Hunnam in one of his best performances. Uh, It's about this guy's repeated journeys to South America in the early 1900s. He's looking for this lost civilization that he calls the Lost City of Zed. Uh, we both, Allison and I, really liked this film. We enjoyed the way that it takes a different approach to this kind of familiar story about the obsessive explorer. Uh, it is not a movie about a simplistic kind of madman. It is much more about how people try to decide what to, kind of like mother, what to sacrifice personally for your professional success. And that is represented in the film by Fawcett's complicated relationship with his wife, played by a very good Sienna Miller. So that's The Lost City of Z or Z, depending on your pronunciation. And that is available on Amazon Prime. Okay, give me two listener recommendations. All right, I have two here from Mitch in Bloomington, Indiana. So Mitch is helping me out here by pulling double duty. Number one recommendation. I'm writing to recommend horror legend Stuart Gordon's solely underseen 2007 film Stuck, available to stream on Shudder. IMDb describes the plot as, When a young woman commits hit a, a hit and run, she finds her fate tied to her victim. To give anything else away would spoil some of the gruesome surprises, but it's apparently very loosely based on true events. The film starts out as a grisly true crime tale and eventually crescendos into an over-the-top morality tale ripped straight from the pages of EC Comics. Stuck is not without its problems. Some of the minor characters veer into potentially offensive stereotypes. But underneath the movie's blood-stained surface is a biting satire on how we tend to casually mistreat and ignore the marginalized people in our society. So that's stuck. Stuck which is available now on Shudder. And recommendation number two, since it's never too early to start prepping for Halloween, I'd like to recommend writer-director Richard Bates Jr.'s 2016 horror comedy Trashfire, which is available on Netflix. Bates is also the director of 2012's excellent coming-of-age horror film Excision, while Trashfire... Doesn't reach the wonderfully macabre heights of that feature. It is a singular effort that feels like what would happen if you took the absurd, narcissistic characters of a Todd Salons film and placed them into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wow, that's a combo. Trashfire may go overboard in just how unlikable its main characters are, making the casting of Adrian Grenier in the lead role feel all too appropriate, yet the film feels distinct in just how nihilistic its black comedy is, and offers some effective surface-level horror thrills that Mark Bates as a filmmaker worth keeping an eye out for. So that is Trashfire, available on Netflix. Both those recommendations from Mitch in Bloomington. Thank you, Mitch, for two films I was unfamiliar with. They both sound very interesting.
1: All right, give me one from your Netflix My List.
0: You gave me number six, and number six on my, 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 my list right now is Boyka, Undisputed. This is the fourth film in the action franchise with Scott Adkins, one of my favorites. Uh, Boyka. Are you familiar with Boyka, Allison? I am not. Boyka. Go on. Boyka. Uh, In this movie, he is taking on the brutal gangster's uh but to to protect the widow of a man he unintentionally killed in the ring. I hate when that happens. <laughs> um so yeah, uh Undisputed is the original franchise here. The first movie was a, I believe, a Walter Hill film with Wesley Snipes and Ving Rames, I want to say. And then there have been this is there this is the fourth direct-to-video sequel. Scott Adkins was the villain in the second one, the hero of the third one, and now the hero of the fourth one. It's uh the third one is a very good sort of Direct-to-video action movie. This one, uh, I haven't heard as good things about, but it was added to Netflix. I just haven't had a a time to carve out a good 90-minute window to watch this one, but I am looking forward to it. Boyka Undisputed. That's on Netflix. Netflix. Allison, are you ready to give us your uh, countdown here? So ready. All right, let's start with three new releases.
1: Okay, first up, new to Netflix is The Bad Batch. The second film from Anna Lily Amirpour, who did Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, was not well-received. Uh, it is a black comedy, horror-thriller, dystopian cannibal romance uh, starring Suki Waterhouse and Jason Momoa. And Kiana Reeves as a leader of a cult named The Dream. He is named The Dream, not The Cult. Uh, I still enjoy this. I, and, and, and I think we'll, we'll talk about it a little more later in the episode. But I do think that Lily Amapur has this sensibility that I just really enjoy. Uh, so that is new to Netflix, The Bad Batch. Also new to Netflix, another cannibalism movie, Slack Bay. Love cannibalism comedies. Uh, this is uh, the 2016 film from Bruno Dumont. Uh, it was at Cannes last year. It is set in this kind of coastal vacation town in 1910. stars Juliette Binoche in an indescribably weird performance. In fact, this whole movie is so strange. It is sort of like like a kind of old-timey comic strip, like a Popeye-style one. All of the characters act like they're cartoons, except they also eat people, Uh, you know, as you do. Slack Bay, that is on Netflix. And finally, also new to Netflix, uh, while I continue these odd things, no cannibalism in this one that I remember. (laughs) Neo-Yokio. You know, uh, I, I was thinking for a long time this summer that, Twin Peaks, The Return was the peak product of peak TV in that I just, I couldn't believe that an executive coughed up money for it. I was thrilled that they had, but it was like the least probable audience friendly uh, TV product I had ever seen. And then I saw Neo Yokio on Netflix, which is anime created by Ezra Koenig of Vampire Weekend, the band, OK, uh, voiced by Jaden Smith, Desis and Mero, fashion blogger Tavi Gevinson and Jude Law as a robot butler and is uh, a kind of combination, maybe dystopian uh, commentary on New York and uh, the class divide in New York mixed with a tribute to anime, uh, including uh, Ranma and all kinds of other specific references. It is indescribably weird. It's six episodes long. And by the end, I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, And that
0: is new to Netflix. All right. How about two listener recommendations?
1: Uh, I'm going to read one from Spencer from Delaware who sent us several. Uh, I think we read, read one last episode. Here's another one. Yo, what up? I got a great pick for an underrated gem. It is called the road to love 2001 film. This is the story of a French Algerian student who picks homosexuality in Islam as a topic for a college class. He gathers help from gay Muslims uh, and get, starts to get very close to one. This is one of the rare LGBTQ African films, the other major one being Wubi Sherry, uh, Paris is Burning in 1990s, Ivory Coast Khan. Um, these are not streaming anymore, but worth checking down. Uh, you can find The Road to Love and many other African films on Fandor, Amazon also has some African films, but not as many. Uh, thank you for that, Spencer, and for kind of continuing to point out some African films that are available on streaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we get a second one from Eli, who wrote... Love the episode, our last episode. uh, uh, This was a Hudson Hawk episode, actually. Listening to Matt's description of the character played by Steven Seagal in On Deadly Ground, it sounds exactly like Billy Jack.
0: Yes, it does. Time for a Billy Jack
1: marathon. (laughs) Best, Eli. Um, I will say, unfortunately, Eli... Only 1971's Billy Jack is available legally digitally. Yeah. It's available for rent. If you want a sampling of Tom Laughlin directing himself as the title character, a half Navajo Green Beret who defends a hippie school against corrupt, abusive townfolk using his hapkido skills. <laughs> uh, so, thank you for that, Eli.
0: All right. And how about one film chosen blindly by number from your my list? You
1: gave me number nine. That is Kun Kun. A nineteen seventy three Bollywood action film, uh directed by Mohammed Hussein. Uh let me read you the Netflix description. Please do. Uh as a crazed killer blazes a trail of blood through an anxious city, a hardened cop aims to take him down by any means in this remake of Dirty Harry. Wow. And I just will have to say, the thing that caught my eye to this that made me add it, is there are just a lot of magnificent 70s mustaches and, uh, and shirts going on, at least in the, fra- in the screen grabs that they have done. I can't believe this is on
0: Netflix. Yeah. Well, how do you spell the title?
1: K-H-O-O-N... Space K H O. Okay, I think
0: people are going to want to know that. Yeah,
1: and I will say, uh, Netflix has been adding, kind of like quietly adding, a lot of Chinese TV shows, a lot of Nigerian movies and shows, uh, and a lot of kind of Indian, mostly movies. And uh, we haven't been talking about them just because I don't think we know we know them very well. But Netflix has been very heavily investing in licensing all kinds of international fare that don't necessarily float up based on whatever your algorithm is. Right. But if you're curious, check out instant watcher and there you'll see like long lists of, of all of this kind of international film and TV that uh, maybe you wouldn't have ex- expected to find on Netflix, right. but that they're clearly kind of investing in for various international audiences. So it's kind of, a this is thing, awesome. I, I, I added out. this to
0: my, my list. I want, I mean, I love a good Bollywood remake of an American film. And, Dirt, and dirty Harry, dirty Harry sounds. I know. And you're right. I'm looking at it now, and the mustaches are they're, supreme. They're incredible. Yeah. yeah, excellent. All right, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. This is like the extremely art house edition of the, of this. We've got three. Our very... last one was pretty art host too. I'm yeah, glad this we're is really... a good
1: kick to be on.
0: Yeah, we're really leaning into our. I like you know it's very. Ma- we want to get as big an audience as possible here, I guess. So we're really picking some very accessible films. Uh, you have the first option this time. I what do. is what it's, is it?
1: It's one that I actually just talked about. It is The Bad Batch on Netflix. Uh, Anna Lily Amirpour's second film. You know, this is a movie that really kind of, given that that the girl walks girl walks home alone at night, really it got a lot of positive attention. Kind of was talked about at the. End of the year bad batch kind of got dropped into theaters and left pretty quickly Mm -hmm. uh I, i do think that despite the fact that this the reviews on this have been extremely mixed uh i think there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about here in particular that this movie is set in a dystopian america in which like basically uh Anyone who's considered an undesirable for criminal or immigration reasons gets dropped into this badlands fenced in badlands where uh you know the rule of law does not apply I, I think that there is plenty about that as like a kind of fantasy setting and as like a, one that is obviously intended to be a commentary uh on where we are today uh, you know that is promising and I think that it has a extremely enjoyable Jason Momoa performance uh, he plays a cannibal guy who's also a dad what is you and the cannibals lately i don't know he also has a uh he has a tattoo across his chest in old english letters that says miami man and he wears high-waisted pants and a giant hatchet (laughs) it is a really is a fabulous look is what i'm saying um but yeah i think that this one you know is worth uh flaws and all taking a look at and there's a lot to talk about there so that's your first option the bad batch on netflix
0: Our next option is also available on Netflix right now. It is Nocturama, directed by Bertrand Bonello. It's a French film. Tells the story of a group of young multiracial radicals committing a series of terrorist attacks in Paris. This played festivals last year. Uh, I would say it got... Uh, it was a divisive film, I would say. I saw some reviews and spoke to some colleagues who said this was their favorite movie uh, of the festival last year, that it was an incredible film. And then there were also reviews like the one in the New York Times from A.O. Scott that called this movie repellent, uh, that – very negative, extremely polarizing. I think in part because of the subject matter, which is about these terrorists who are committing these heinous crimes. Um, but And I haven't seen the movie, but as I understand it, it's not necessarily treating them as – uh, the villains of the movie or anything like that. Uh, I think that maybe the depiction of them is what some people like and what some people hated. Uh, I, have you seen this one, Alison? I have not seen this so one. So this is one that we, neither of us have seen, and but I've certainly been wanting to, yes, it's something that we'll be, who knows what we'll think, but I think it would be interesting to get to engage with this one and see how it strikes us and see how we react to it because it's a movie that has provoked strong reactions uh, positive and negative in the people that have seen it. Uh, so this is definitely one that I am very curious to watch as well. That's option number two, Noctorama, available now on Netflix.
1: And option number three is Hounds of Love, which is available for streaming right now on Hulu. This is an Australian film that was written and directed by Ben Young. It was his debut, and I believe it was at Venice last year, and is about a teenager named Vicky Maloney who, uh, dealing with troubles at home uh, in suburbia, rebels by going to uh, sneak out to a party, ends up getting a ride from a couple who kidnap her, and hold her captive uh, in this kind of extremely dark situation where she has to figure out how to avoid getting murdered by uh, maybe manipulating her way out. Uh, This is a movie that I think also was very divisive. Some people found it like an extremely promising debut and some people found it just like uh, too grueling uh, in terms of its subject matter and punishing. But it is a movie that I definitely heard, a bunch of people talk about and then it got a very cursory theatrical release before ending up pretty quickly afterwards on Hulu. So it's one that I'm very curious to check up on. And, uh, you know, I think we've got three divisive movies here, movies that really split opinions. And I think that that's uh, always a sign that they'll be fun to talk about. For sure. Yes. Um, So that's your third option. Hounds of Love on Hulu.
0: All right, what movie should we review on the next episode of film Spotting SVU? Send your pick to SVU at FilmSpottingSVU.com or just enter in the poll on the bottom of the page at FilmSpottingSVU.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, October 2nd at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, Twitter.com slash FilmSpottingSVU. And then you'll have all that week to watch the film. And then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be out on Tuesday, October 10th
1: filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our episode archive as well as a list of direct links to all of the titles we discuss on the episode. The Film SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at Vincevandal.bandcamp.com. and we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review you pick and in the meantime you can always find us on Twitter, We're too often on Twitter, at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And don't forget to follow the show at Film Spotting SVU or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Film Spotting SVU. Uh, on both places, we always announce the winner of each listener's choice poll, and we also, on Twitter, share more streaming suggestions, uh, ones that I find and ones from you. And don't forget, we had a huge backlog of listener recommendations from you guys, but we need some more. So if you've streamed something good lately that you want to recommend, email us, svu at filmspottingsvu.com, and we will read it on the episode. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm
0: Matt Singer. Thanks for listening.